the Advanced Tech Podcast, providing a spotlight for innovators and disruptors. For links and show notes, and to find out how to sponsor the Advanced Tech Podcast, go to advancedtechmedia.org. You can also find and sponsor us on Patreon. If you're listening to us on iTunes, Google Play, or Android, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating. You can also sponsor us using Bitcoin at advancedtechmedia.org slash sponsor. Welcome to the Advanced Tech Podcast. Joining me today is Adrian Hall, and we're going to learn a little bit about his background and hear a random pen click in the background. <laughs> Good times. We've had some interesting um, audio challenges, but... Uh, We'll take a photo of the setup. There's three computers that are recording for like a triplicate backup. Yeah, so. it'd be a nice panoramic photo of <laughs> yeah. all, all three laptops working away at creating our audio. One of them should actually hopefully record. We'll see. Yeah, one, one track out of the mini shall survive. Totally. So welcome, Adrian. Yeah, thank you. Um, what was that first question? <laughs> There's, there's so much. So many questions. Yeah, so many questions. So if you can tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing and how you got into that. Sure. So oh, the way I get into things is, is often a complex, long, and extensive story. But these days, I am currently working for Datastax as a developer advocate. It's it's a little bit of a loaded statement to say I'm just being a developer advocate. I am kind of all over the board. I contribute to projects, open source projects. I do a lot of the things that are associated with developer advocacy. I go out to speak at conferences. I work on organizing meetups, getting speakers at the meetups. Sometimes I speak at the meetups. But I do a lot of things that sometimes might be or might not be associated with developer advocacy, like working to get partnerships between teams within Datastack, sometimes outside and inside, where I'll pull together maybe some people from Microsoft and Google and then, you know, get them to work on a project with us, things like that. So I'm a little bit all over the board. And the way I got into this was a temporal, multi-stream, bilateral conversation from two avenues initiated from Twitter and also email from my wife, but also my friends that work at Datastacks. And at some point I got connected to the right people. They had a great interview process. I went through that, talked to everybody involved and they brought me aboard and all of those conversations that it was initiated from from all those temporal anomalies and multi-streams of communication turned into all sorts of cool projects that I now work on and work with people at Datastax doing. So that's that's how I got there. It sounds kind of crazy. It almost sounds like a, a sci-fi comic book series. That's actually a fairly straightforward path. I think so. You know, temporal anomaly aside, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's life without a little temporal anomaly? Mm-hmm. Awesome. You also have a Twitter channel, or not Twitter, Twitch channel, yeah. Thrashing Code. Twitter too, just as me, Adrian, and Twitter Thrashing Code, which that also leads to the Twitch thing. So I have the Thrashing Code Twitter so that I don't bombard my normal Twitter Adrian account with all of my streaming tweets. I try to be somewhat courteous to the fact that not everybody wants to hear about every single thing that I'm always tweeting about all the time. And I tend to focus my Adrian account on music and heavy metal, sometimes jazz, pictures of beautiful things like sunsets while riding a train to Vancouver, and just kind of general fun stuff, and also very tech-focused. Meanwhile, over on Thrashing Code, is it's all tech, all Twitch stream, all the time there, with the theme of heavy metal. So there's a little bit of redundancy. On the Twitch channel that I've created, 
So I call it thrashing code. It's kind of themed based on my thrashing code thing, whatever that really is, which really is just focused around goofy, kitschy, heavy metal art and music and stuff like that. But the main focus, like the real content of the Twitch stream is projects that I'm putting together for data stacks, for open source projects or whatever that I'm working on at a particular time. So I have this Twitch stream and I start it and get together with whoever shows up and we work through problems and get solutions to those problems, implement them in whatever it is that we're using, whether it's Terraform to get some deployments put together or we're trying to reverse engineer a C repo of something that we need some library for to use. Whatever the case, uh, I dive into it on the Twitch channel. And so far I've found it very, very rewarding and useful. It's not the nightmarish scenario of some of the gaming side of Twitch, uh, which I was not too worried about, um, hasn't come to rear its ugly head at all. Everybody's been super cool. A lot of helpful interactions, a lot of very, very helpful connections have been made. And I'm, I'm really loving that aspect of it. And like it's becoming more and more of a community because of other streamers also. And we just keep putting together more and more content and building more and more together on all these things. It's pretty cool. What are some of the some of your more challenging and interesting things that you put together on your channel? Hmm. I would say the streaming is kind of challenging unto itself because one of the things that you do, you're kind of forced to figure out. There isn't a particular path to go to figure these things out. But if you want your channel to really be involved with your audience and you want chat to be effective and involved for people so that they can use their avatars and all this kind of stuff and really have them be involved with you and you be involved with them building the thing that you're building, there are a lot of aspects to the ecosystem to learn to implement on your channel to make it fun and useful for them and you. So by proxy of that, the hardest part of my streaming these days has been getting all that figured out. But there's one other thing that's been really weird and kind of like a mind twist to figure out, which is this is not a webinar. This isn't a planned presentation. It's not planned screencast material. It's not pre-baked. You have to get it in your head that this is people effectively getting together to go through something, a problem space or whatever it is, and, and they're just, they're working on it right there. They don't have it all pre-baked. They don't have the solution already fixed. So sometimes you you kind of get stuck in the mud, so to speak. And you got to, like I've found myself, oh, I should be comfortable with this because I'm going to be stuck sometimes. Sometimes I'm not going to know the answer and nobody else on the stream will either. So getting in your mind to be okay with getting stuck, to, to actually be working through the problem, it, it's a little bit of a challenge. You know, at least for me, I was thinking, oh, I'm on air. I want it to be super useful, blah, blah, blah. I need to always have the answers, this and that. No, Twitch and the notion behind it and the way interactions occur, it's not set up for that to always just be the thing that you're doing. You can't pre-bake that all the time. You're literally working through what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So once I got my head wrapped around that, the floodgates opened. It became so much easier, more relaxing. No, it's kind of just easy. Like, I just pop it on and start streaming. I try to follow a little bit of a schedule, though, so people know when when I'm doing something. But otherwise, it's just it's the thing I do on a daily basis now. That's awesome. 
How have you found that it's impacted your life and your career in general? Has it improved? Has it added? My, okay, my case is definitely going to be one of plenty of confirmation bias and anecdote. <laughs> Simply put, there, there isn't a whole lot of data outside of my own situation to really speak to. I see other people doing it. They seem to be having a good time, being successful at it, etc. Definitely, though, it's a case of People that are Twitch streaming are either working on open source projects and have backing. Like they just do it because that's that's their job. That's their project they're working on. And it's licensed in a way that they can do that. Like C Sharp Fritz, great channel. Got a lot of hilarious, fun stuff going on all the time. Working on a ton of different projects. He works for Microsoft. So that's totally cool if he does that all day. Makes it a little straightforward in at least the approach to using that time to do that. It's very clear that those are the types of scenarios one has to be in to be able to do a Twitch stream. One can't just whimsically in the middle of the bank be like, I'm going to Twitch stream this financial application I'm building. <laughs> Not going to fly. But it's super useful for us that can do it to do it publicly for everybody. You know, there's a lot of stuff to be able to learn and teach, you know, both ways, really. On that note, like, has it helped me in my career? Being that it's also been kind of a company-driven thing as much as a me-driving-it type of thing, Yes, because I, I kind of was the reconnoiter force to go out and experiment and try it out and see if it failed or succeeded, if it was worth doing or not doing. So I was kind of the person on the team at Datastax to go out and kind of go through the failures that I would have to go through to get it figured out, to go test out a lot of these like these little hacks and bots and plugins and stuff. So I did that and read a bunch of stuff that other people had written about whatever aspect of it. And in that sense, yeah, it's definitely helped me. It's also helped me become more disciplined about like, if I have to do X, Y, Z, if I'm going to do it on a Twitch stream, I'm much more likely to be able to stay focused on it. Partly because it engages my ADHD kind of mind that is scattered all over the place. If I have chat going on and I'm programming and kind of working through it and they're kind of helping me and I'm we're kind of just conversing, I actually keep moving forward. Whereas if I just work in silence on a project, I will routinely go, oh, squirrel, I should go get a bucket of ice cream or whatever disruption. And there goes my productivity for the next hour. And then I have to refocus. So there's there's more interruptions if I just have a quiet, still space. But with Twitch, that doesn't happen. It keeps me engaged, keeps me focused on the problem. So that's that's kind of the twofold benefit of Twitch. Yes, it's helped me professionally, also because it was a supported, you know, research experiment for the company that's now growing. We're starting to do more of it from the company perspective as well. And also it's helped me personally because it's like this automatic focusing engine for me. So yeah, it's it's been great in that regard. But again, it's it's me. I don't know if that's going to work for everybody. <laughs> it might just drive some people crazy. So It's interesting that you bring up how being more distracted keeps you focused. Mm-hmm. That's probably a challenging paradigm to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me either because it doesn't seem logical. And it's a very finite number of things. Like if I have more than two or three things to focus on, then I just collapse into, uh, what's the word, analysis paralysis. Like which thing am I working on? I don't know. I have 15 things to work on. Ah, stop. I'm stuck. But if it's just two or three things, like a conversation, someone randomly commenting about something like this, it's just enough of an interruption that I can still kind of focus, but I can also just continually refocus, uh, which... Sounds super energy intensive, but it's not. It's worse if I get completely derailed and I go get the bucket of ice cream or I go, I don't know, oh, it feels like this is a great hour to go have whiskey or whatever stupid idea I have. It always turns into, if it's just me, 
it'll be an hour long distraction period. Twitch, maybe 30 seconds to a minute because I will catch myself. I can catch myself when these things are occurring. And then also like people start to get involved and they'll say, Hey, you were doing this thing. What's the thing? Where are you going with it? Like get back on course. So it's kind of a mutual feeding mechanism toward keeping the ship going in the right direction, which is awesome. I love it. That's really cool. Yeah. It's a good analogy that you're kind of using, you know, others to kind of guide you back as well. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like a mutual benefit because I think the audience at the same time, people kind of like it when I stray a bit and we start talking about something or like, oh, go look at this thing on the internet. It's just like a little temporal break from the, sometimes the monotony of the specific thing, especially if it's taken a minute. Like, oh, I got to do this, and then I got to do a build, or I got to do this processing, and it takes five minutes. It's like, oh, well, that's that's doing that, but hey, we're all here. Let's chat, or let's go, I don't know, we can do something for five minutes. So we do something for five minutes, and then, you know, pop back around to whatever it is. So it just makes it more entertaining. Keeps everybody kind of kind of eye on the prize, to use the colloquial statement. <laughs> awesome. So you're up here in Vancouver specifically to give a talk at DevOps Days. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you were talking about and how that went? I had a blast. Um, I hope everybody else enjoyed my talk too. Uh, but I definitely know I had a blast. I had I had fun. I was a little bit wired on caffeine, um, partly because I was up late paying attention to stuff that I shouldn't pay attention to probably. But I was up late kind of reviewing things, fiddling around got going this morning a little bit late. So I felt a little wired, but I feel like I covered all the bases of what I wanted to, which generally was focused around Go as a programming language and its use to build and extend the reliability and practice and process around using a database. I mean, we're always using a database, some type of database within our applications. And I kind of posited the argument of Go being a premium language to build around these ecosystems, specifically with like uh, database reliability in mind, site reliability in mind. Build your tools in it, like your CLI apps, etc. Talked a little bit about like the Cobra Commander or Cobra Go library, which also has Viper and a bunch of other GI Joe themed. Um, library pieces and elements, which is a lot of fun. But it's the CLI library that's also used in a lot of other Go CLI applications like Terraform, uh, Cloud Foundry uses it, Kubernetes uses it, and a lot of the the really big, well-known projects are using Cobra under the hood as a primary means of building out the CLI for uh, whatever it is. So it's, it's one of my favorite tools in that tool chest to use for building out my CLI apps, any type of maintenance stuff I'm doing, things that I hand off to other operations people or developers or DevOps people or whatever the title may be. I was talking about that. And then the key libraries that I use too within that ecosystem to build out those CLI apps. Like there's of course the database drivers around Postgres and Apache Cassandra and Datastacks Enterprise and Redis and Mongo and all that stuff. But then there's other libraries that are pretty extensive in their capabilities that have expanded past the simple, I need ETL move data from point A to point B to, well, I need it transformed. I need to incrementally be able to run scientific research calculations on things. I need preprocessors and postprocessors and all this stuff. So I went through libraries like Pachyderm.io, 
which, yes, it is named Pachyderm, just like an elephant. Very cute little project logo and everything, too. You love it, go check it out. But pachyderm.io online, open source, out on GitHub. There's also a company associated with it that's just gotten a few rounds or a round, whatever, of VC. So it's growing. They do a lot of everything from like ETL and BI, business intelligence, that is. That's, that's the one that keeps sticking in my head because they just got so much going on. But also I did some coverage of other libraries and where they are would fit into your process of not just reliability engineering, but also your day-to-day development process. Because really, to be able to do effective, reliable, you know, reliability engineering in the context of like SRE or DBRE, database reliability engineering, you gotta gotta have projects that will support the mindset and idea behind those things. If someone's just writing as is jokingly referred sometimes, artisanal, handcrafted, bespoke, organic deployments of applications, you're not going to have a good time on the reliability end of things. There's always going to be some weird flaky mess going on. So you got to have a consistent development process too. And that's where I introduced a number of libraries around schema migration so that you can always make sure that all the developers and all the team, all production, all of dev or whatever environments you have, all have a similar database schema to be working against and working with and have a clear path for changes that need to be put into the system. So people aren't, you know, randomly, oh, here's my nice little bespoke table on, you know, artisanal flowers and how I handcrafted how they're shaped or some craziness. You know, you get consistent, reliable deployments of your database schema, which is huge. And that's primarily in the day-to-day development process that that would be used. And then I talked a little bit about drivers and the general support of what drivers usually have in them and a little bit about just what your practice ought to be when you're trying to go through build reliable systems from a database engineering perspective from the point of view of Go. Like what does it have in its in its libraries, in the language and all that kind of jazz. So it was a lot of fun. I got pretty good feedback on it. Didn't have too many people like just dozing off, falling asleep or anything like that. I always, I always see that as a pretty good sign. If like people are kind of looking at me and like shaking a head or, you know, I get a little bit of feedback or people ask questions, then I'm like, okay, that was, that was a victory. That was good. So it turned out good. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah especially for an early morning presentation. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> like I don't actually think I remember the first 20 minutes, honestly, but yeah, it's, it's always, I don't know. I do get focused in the morning. Even with just a bunch of caffeine, even if I'm a little like, oh, oh, I feel like my brain has slowed enough that that ADHD hasn't like captured me and ran me off in nine different directions. Like I actually can stay focused on the singular thing, which they say that's one reason why like sometimes at very certain points of the day, you're actually tired enough to be focused. Or in some cases, some people are like, well, if I have just a little bit of a beer, boom, I'm focused. And that's, it just slows down those extra threads that have run off. So I think that that might've helped me a little bit, even amidst all the caffeine and craziness. But had a lot of fun. Had a lot of fun in post-conversations too. Those are always good at conferences. It's one of the things I love about conferences is the meeting of different minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and like the hallway conversations and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think, uh, was it often referred to as the hallway track, right? Yeah. It's like the unofficial hallway track is an official part of the of conferences these days. I find too, like DevOps days, dramatically more community focused, run by the community, run by people in their spare time, really, because they're interested in these things, because they want to learn about these things. They want to know how to 
build or create or put together these ideas they have. So they have these conferences, they get involved in the conferences. And that really translates, at least I feel that it translates very, very much at like DevOps days. Some of the conferences that myself and Lena and Troy Howard and some other people put together down in Portland, like ML for All and .NET Fringe and NodePDX, they've always been focused around the idea of we put together the conferences in large part because we want to bring together an audience and a set of speakers that will teach us too. You know, it's not just we want to go through the torture of organizing a bunch of people to be in one place at one time, but those community type of conferences that are just focused around people being together and talking about their curiosities and what they can impart to other people. The ROI on those, and I kind of hate to even put ROI as the word, but the, just the value that I get out of those is huge in comparison to pretty much any big giant corporate conference ever that I've been to. Um, I would be shocked if I ever go to one of those big machine-run conferences and get that same type of value. It's just, it's not the same energy. The intensity that goes into the conversations, like the immediacy of it, completely different. If I could go to community conferences all the time, I just would. I'd go to one a, one a month easily and probably not feel burned out. It just kind of like feeds me full of energy. <laughs> That's awesome. You mentioned a couple other conferences, and I'd love if we can touch on these. So Node PDX and PDX Node, because we wanted to be confusing. The conference was Node PDX, and the user group, or the meetup group, whatever you call them, is PDX Node. Okay, PDX Node's still rocking it. Uh, Node PDX, we haven't done that in like three years. We don't really have a game plan, honestly, on where we're going with that. Me and Troy Howard started that. And I think our first one was 2012 is when we were learning how to run conferences. So it was like this awesome, amazing, completely chaotic, insane experience. We gave ourselves four weeks to run a conference and we pulled it off. The key thing we learned then was that was a super bad idea. Do not decide to do a conference four weeks from the date that you decide to do the conference. We're lucky we pulled it off. Total credit goes to the Portland tech scene. Everybody there. I mean, New Relic dived in. Other people dived in. Because we couldn't even take money. We weren't incorporated into any entity. It was just two friends that wanted to have a node conference. So we did. We realized we shouldn't be taking people's money. So we then got them to basically contribute. New Relic covered the party. NetSpace gave us the space, basically, to have it in. Everything was free from that perspective to us to organize around. All the food at the conference completely made by Troy and a couple of our other friends that joined forces. And we went out and figured out how to, on next to no budget, make food for 200 people. That was that was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. Also kind of insane. Uh, but we did it, pulled it off. The food turned out at least edible. <laughs> um, and we had a great conference. We even did a little bit of streaming, which was it was okay. The talks are still out there. Uh, but the next year, it was definitely a case of lessons learned. And we did a much, much more collected job. And it was more cohesive. We got more volunteers, for one. Because we're like, this is clearly more than a two-person effort. And that next year turned out really, really good. We were all happy with that. I mean, the first year was, too. It was just, whew. Yeah, we were out of breath the whole time. And then we started .NET Fringe with another crew of people. Glenn Black, Byron... Uh, there's so many more people that, that helped, too, with .NET Fringe. And then, is it last year? The year before? Last, last, something. Anyway, we're about to have ML for All again, and that's kind of been our focus lately. And that stands for Machine Learning for All. 
did our first one, I guess it was last year. It just seems like it was 10 minutes ago. But we got the next one coming up on April 28, 29, 30 in Portland again. Same place at the Bossa Nova Ballroom. Kind of like the feel for it because it's, it's a venue. has like hardwood floors, kind of an old feel to it. Classic. We usually can get like all sorts of good Portlandy community type of involvement when we have it downtown there. And it also makes it super easy. Very walkable for everybody to get to. Lots of places to stay, hotels or Airbnbs or whatever, right close. Uh, it just makes it easy to come and really focus on the conference, have a good time meeting people, hanging out. Or, you know, if you need to take five, there's a coffee shop across the street, super chill. There's a Korean barbecue place right around the corner, too. Not even a block away, I don't think. Plenty of places to go hide out if you need a break. And then plenty of space in the area to sit, watch talks, or even have a conversation with people. So it's like we get to bring together all the pieces that we like about community-based conferences and really focus on those. So it seems like we've been doing it right as of the last couple years. So what can people look forward to at ML for All? Oh, well, they can read my blog at compositecode.blog, and I am about to introduce... Every one of the speakers that have been selected and also not just introduce them, but introduce the talk. Uh, and the schedule should be going up soon thereafter, if not somewhere in between me introducing that on the blog. Lena and Troy and the rest of the organizing crew are working diligently on that. It just takes time. You know, we have day jobs and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that should be going up soon. The... The biggest thing with this is it's like an introductory, getting started, yet still advanced topic machine learning conference. Like we don't go all crazy academic. We're not going to get up there and talk about math for the whole day, or I should say algorithm math based on machine learning Bayesian principles or whatever the whole time. We may have some math, but we're also going to have like, here's a way to get started with XYZ tools that you have right in front of you. So there's a wide range of talks. And there's just, you know, that hallway track. There's going to be tons of conversations. There always is. We make sure it's comfortable. Plenty of comfortable seats, places to hang out, etc. Those are the big things to look forward to. So it's a good way to go and figure out some direction for yourself, too, especially if you're new to machine learning and you want to get some ideas. Prime conference to go to. Cool. It's interesting they're calling it machine learning for all versus artificial intelligence for all. Yeah, it seems like the AI thing got stolen by uh, Hollywood to some degree. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I I made a joke at one point. I was like, why don't we just call this probability math and analysis or something? You know, I was coming up with goofy names for it at one point. Mm -hmm. And everybody just looked at me and goes, you can't call it a math thing. <laughs> I'm like, it really is just math. I mean, it's not like we've created new ways to do the math. We just now can actually do the processing and the compute. And we have tooling around this versus 20 years ago when if you tried to get a machine to figure out a lot of this stuff in these methods, mm -hmm. you either had billions of dollars to waste or you simply just did not have the compute. Yeah. And now it's just it's a different scenario. You can play around with it. There's options to be had around that. So stuff. And is it a, a two-day conference? It is. So the first day is kind of a conferency, not conferency day. We usually have, I don't know if we'll do the bike ride this year, but Portland being a kind of bikey place, at least as far as I will say this for all international listeners, a bikey place based on U.S. bikey terms. This is not Amsterdam. Still kind of weird to ride a bike around. Uh, in Portland, but it's nice. There's a lot of nice neighborhoods to ride through, different breweries and coffee shops and different little cool things to see. So we usually take like a bike ride that first day or we'll go hike in 
one of the extremely large parks. The one that's just north of the city is almost as big as the city itself, and it's just up in the hills, very beautiful, uh, and things like that. Kind of get people together, have some casual conversation, just hang out and do whatever. That's usually the, the Sunday, and then Monday, Tuesday is when we have the conference itself where we jump into speakers and open spaces and all that kind of jazz. Cool. When we were talking earlier, you were mentioning how there's more open spaces in some of the conferences you're going to and how mm-hmm. open spaces add an element that really enrich the conference. Can people expect quite a few of those? Yeah, so the way we set this up, the way the Bossa Nova Ballroom is set up that helps us to do this, actually. And matter of fact, every place that we've ever used for a conference in Portland we make sure that there's kind of like the chill, quiet space, the organizing space, and then kind of the main showroom space. So there's the main floor where the presentation is occurring. Obviously not a good place to try to have open space conversations in the middle of a presentation. That'd be ridiculous. But upstairs, there is a area that's kind of usually the bar, but it's closed down for this. So during the day, it's just this nice, like, old-style hardwood floor area with a little bit of a stage where people can set up like a whiteboard or whatever and get the post-its out and set up the open space to kind of get ideas up there and and get into the different topics. Um, And then to the side of that, separated by a wall and railing and some other stuff on that same floor, though, is an area that's usually a little dark, a little quieter. You can still watch the presentations from there if you want to, but it's a good place to just sit and not have a lot of noise be around you. So like if you need some quiet time, but you still want to kind of watch the presentations or you want to kind of sit closer to the side that's near the open spaces, you can do that and you can kind of just eavesdrop. And it's a nice relaxing way to kind of sit between those, but also get the most out of either the talks or the open spaces. So that's that's how we break that out. And yeah, we basically do the open spaces start to stop. I think like the first day... Like the first two hours, we're not doing open spaces because we're introducing and getting everything started. Mm -hmm. But then I think around like 11 or noon on that first day, we usually get the whiteboard out, throw the post-its out on the table and, you know, let people dive into all that stuff. And every single time, there's at least one post-it up there the minute we put the whiteboard up. So it's, it's been pretty successful. And yeah, definitely adds a ton of value, tons of value. Awesome. It's almost like a chaotic collected, cohesive way to have the hallway conversations. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be cool. It'd be nice to see a a conference actually call it the hallway track and maybe have capturing devices and feedback. That'd be interesting. That would be cool. I I have thought about, speaking of capturing devices, I went to KubeCon and I actually, it's a little tough because at KubeCon you wear a thing to say, I'm okay with being filmed or not being okay with filmed. I try to be completely respective of that, but it's a little hard. What I was doing was I basically had a camera, turned it on. As somebody pointed out, it's like a Predator camera. So if you ever saw that old Predator movie from the 80s or whatever, and the Predator Beast thing has that thing on its shoulder, that was my camera. And I'm walking around with that, and it's recording video, it's recording sound. But what I'm doing is I try to walk around to each of the booths at KubeCon, and then I carried it around for hallway conversation. And I always ask people, like, hey, hey, is it cool if we record this and, like, just have this conversation? And usually within two seconds, if they're cool with it, within two seconds they've forgotten that the camera's even there, and we're having the conversation, which is super cool. Because then I can go back and kind of cover all the bases and pull out the cool, valuable parts and maybe even put a video together or even just, like, take notes myself. But, yeah, so having a device or something like having a mic where people can go to rooms and have conversations that they want to be able to have 
access to after the fact, I think that would be huge. I, I would find it helpful at least. I'd go listen to some of the conversations and be like, okay, we, we tackled this, but then we got into something else. and I, We kind of went down this other path. But what was it that we were actually saying? Let me go back and listen to that again and try to try to follow that train of thought that we were on. I think that would be useful in just the review sense, but also kind of figuring out where the path of the day went and making the most of it. So that's an interesting idea. Maybe we'll have to get some mics and put them out or something. People want to do that. Totally. Yeah, I think I go to a a few Bitcoin conferences here and there. And in the um, hacking or cryptocurrency space or anything where there's an element where privacy is is really key, oftentimes it's requested the not film. Right. Um, but people that are, are open to that, I think you can get so much more value out of it. And mm-hmm. it might even be interesting to explore how do you do that in a privacy setting? How can you do it so that the, oh, yeah. you know, the ideas well, get surfaced? That, yeah, so like at KubeCon, it was pretty easy. I don't know of any official rules about it. And I did it in a very, like, not identifying way. Like, I wasn't walking up to people and going, like, you're going to be on video, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I mean, somebody's going to punch me in the face if I kept doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> but no, I would have it and I'd usually pop it on. Or if I just was like walking around generally to look at the logos and stuff, I mean, companies want their stuff anyway. So that part was easy. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't showing somebody that was like, I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to invade somebody's, what little privacy we have in this world today. I don't want to invade that for people, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, the conferences that are more focused around not doing that. Or like in the case of O'Reilly, they specifically state like, if you're going to video, we need to know about it. It needs schedule. Like we need to make sure everything you do is on the up and up or whatever. And for those types of situations, I just, I don't need to try. Like I'm not going to try it in a rally conference. I, if, if I had like a, some credentials or whatever that said I could record, I would still even question like, should I be doing it? I'm just going to keep to like, just not even do it there. It's just easier that way. I'll just write about it after the fact or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the other ones like cryptocurrency stuff, DEFCON, that's another one where like some people, you know, if they go, they may or may not have gone as far as they're concerned with the public record. You know, so there's that aspect of things. And that that definitely makes it hard. Like, I mean, how much official footage of DEFCON can anybody see? Not a lot because there's not official footage, really. There's some goofy nonsense that's happened, but that's also just kind of Las Vegas, right? <laughs> so yeah, it's. I think there's a lot of potential there, but there's a lot of conflict that needs to be navigated to make sure, you know, nobody's getting too perturbed. I'm sure yeah. somebody's always a little fussy about stuff being publicly available. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, it's, uh, that's an interesting point. Everything is kind of in the public domain these days, so... What do you do if you want, you know, if you if you don't want to put it all out there? And, and how do you share in a sharing economy while still maintaining some of your privacy? That's, a, mm-hmm. that's an interesting challenge. Just kind of on a jovial, ha-ha type of note, I found that, like, most of my advocacy that I do around city planning, bicycling, transit, street equity, that kind of stuff, so boring, most people just don't even know that I'm involved, <laughs> even though I'm now publicly saying it. But like I've, I've been active in that type of efforts in all over the Northwest, really, for, oh, geez, decade, over a decade. Um, and a lot of people have no idea that I'm involved. They know that I'm a bikey person and I show up on my bike in the weirdest of places and whatever, or I ride trains or something like that. But beyond that, like a lot of people just don't care. It's fine to each their own. But I found that if I am in something where I want privacy, I just do a really boring thing. 
and then and instantly people just like block it out. But then on the other hand, like if I'm doing something interesting, like some programming hackery thing, if I try to hide that, it's like, oh, did you hear what Adrian's doing? Da, da, da. He's been working on this thing. You got to check it. All of a sudden, it's like viral. So I don't know. It is it is kind of funny. But yeah, the more boring thing I do, the, it seems the easier to keep that out of the limelight. If it bores the public. In any way, form, or manner, it's just like, oh, that didn't happen. Sure, it didn't happen. Nobody's going to believe it happened. It was boring. (laughs) Um, If you're open to covering it, I'd love to hear a little bit about your advocacy and planning. Yeah, so it's a a super hard thing in the U.S. There's the simple dichotomy that the cities are mostly drained, um, and they don't actually have a lot of power over what they do or don't do, how they develop. and, and what power they do have is often controlled by don't build anything new. Contrary to America's reputation for the longest time of like, oh, they just build new stuff all the time. Well, we don't really operate that way anymore at all. So it's it's tough as an advocate. Um, but basically, you know, it's simple stuff in a city. Like say the city of Seattle literally has thousands of miles of sidewalks. And they literally have thousands of miles of sidewalks that should be available to people, children, people that use mobility devices, whatever, to help them safely get places that simply don't exist for a number of reasons. I mean, a lot of them are completely legitimate reasons, like the city never set a budget for it, or the funding that was for XYZ sidewalk got reallocated to build a highway or something. Just standard governmental type of nonsense. But that's some of the things where I've gone and worked with city organization groups, with independent organizations, and kind of advocated and helped do everything from what is called uh, tactical urbanism to where I'm working with city council members to set up working examples. Like one of the things that I'm super proud of and is super cool in Portland is on 3rd Street, right between Burnside and 3rd Street, where Voodoo Donuts is. Very popular area of town. For the longest time, it was just this huge wide street, which was kind of weird because no wide street of that width existed to even feed into it anymore. And there was reasons it was that way a long time ago because different things fed in, but they didn't exist anymore. And it was just this big, weird intersection where to like to walk across to Voodoo Donuts, to walk across to the pizza joint or the other bar and all this activity around there. You had to go across this like four lane road, which sometimes had traffic, sometimes didn't have traffic. It was just kind of this random mess. Well, I joined up with this group, and what we did was we went in and set up this demo where we narrowed it down to a single two lanes of traffic, and we just used, like, cones, non-permanent stuff to do this. We used some hay bales, which is pretty (laughs) hilarious, Um, and we got some mobile park benches and brought them in, and we set up a street space using some of the parking and some of the extra lane space to set up the benches and people could come out here and sit and eat the pizza or the Buddha donuts, whatever. And then the hay bales were there to kind of separate that from like we made a little bike lane and then two lanes of traffic. And then on the other side was a little bit more of a buffer for the sidewalk. All those things fit in that road space. We left it there for three, three or four weeks, okay, through rush hours, through all that stuff. And what we were able to determine was how much of an impact it had to like a traffic jam or not, how much safer or how much more active people became around it to like partake in activities around these businesses. 
and all that kind of thing. So it was a lot of data collection during that part, like manual stand out there and like count how many people are crossing the street now versus before. And we did the data collection before. And after this three, four, five weeks, whatever it was, we sat down and we looked at all the data. And we were able to go to the city and say, here's your argument. We saw like a 480% increase in people sitting around eating, doing activities like hanging out in the street there or, you know, in that space with the benches and the seats and the tables and stuff that were eating pizza, a pop-up cart showed up one day and they got permission with the city and all, but it, you know, it just seemed like to people just walking around like, oh, look, a cart popped up. So, you know, people were eating from the cart. Uh, we had street musicians that came out, not even like they just showed up and they'd start playing guitar and hanging out. And basically what happened was that space was so active now that the city was like, hmm, maybe we should make that the space. Because the other side effect that we found was we, at most, the trip time for the car or two that could fit through or that would come through that street and that would feed out onto the other street was at most like 15 to 20 seconds delayed at like 5, 25 p.m., like right smack in the middle of rush hour. We're like, that's considering how much more thriving the businesses are here now and they're not at risk of like basically shutting down for 90% of the day and only being open like 5 p.m. till 2 a.m. or whatever you know they could open up at lunchtime and all of a sudden there's these new places people can eat while they're at work or whatever it's like 15 20 30 seconds that's more than manageable to have this additional activity in these active businesses so they put it in place and it is now currently set up like that, which is super rad to go. Like every time I visit Portland, I walk through that intersection. I'm like, ah, I helped do that. And now nobody even, like the complaints that were happening at the time, mm-hmm. none of those even really exist anymore. And that's something that I've also found being active in those circles. It takes forever to get anything done. Once you do it, there's usually an uproar for a certain amount of time. And then the uproar ends as soon as the general populace realizes, oh, I kind of like this thing, this change. I think a prime example of that was like advocating over the years for like transportation options. In Seattle, one of the big advocacy efforts was like get a monorail or get a light rail, get something to act as a backbone. Mm -hmm. And they built the one line of light rail through town to the airport, and there's 85,000 trips a day on that line now that connect University of Washington to Capitol Hill, to downtown, and onwards through some southern neighborhoods and into the airport. Completely has changed, for the better, the life of a huge number of people along that line. And there's not a lot of legitimate argument to say that that was a bad idea anymore. Some people can fuss about, oh, it was too expensive. You didn't need the tunnel. They could come up with something to argue about. Mm -hmm. But that's 85,000 trips a day that's not down the interstate or not clogging up something else. It's something that's just done right there in that corridor that's enriching that area, giving more options to people and things like that. So that's, that is that circle of advocacy that I do. I think part of it's boring to a lot of people just because it's so slow moving. You got to go sit and listen to people at city council. And that's always weird and slow and freakish sometimes. <laughs> and then, I mean, what's that? What's that? Uh, Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. Like if you ever watch Parks and Rec, and uh, oh shoot, the the star. I'm trying to think of her name. Uh, you know, she has the meeting. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. With to get, the blonde hair. Yeah, to yeah. get the public input. She's super excited about it, and then she goes, and the people that come in and say stuff is complete non sequitur. They're off the topic. They're out in some field of 
conversation, you have no idea what they're talking about, even. That is real life at a city council meeting. Because it's basically the people who have either dedicated time or people that bored out of their mind that tend to go to these things and put in their input. So if people are ever wondering, why is this thing implemented so weirdly? Well, look at who goes to city council meetings. Get involved. Um, yes, it's boring. It's slow. But if you want better results, you got to get more input on stuff, especially from people that know what could be better. Um, but yeah, I go sit through those and torture myself sometimes. And, <laughs> and in some sense, it's it's like free, non-sequitur comedy, if you can kind of remove yourself a little bit from it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's what I do in my non-existent spare time. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how long change can actually take to occur, but I think it's a really good point that you bring up about how, you know, people... People will complain about anything all day, all the time, all day long, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's free. I mean, you know. <laughs> but there's a, you know, things don't really change until you actually get involved. And right. the barrier to doing that isn't so high. Uh, sometimes you have to sit through some not-so-fun meetings. But right. I think it's really good that you're getting involved and you're seeing results from that. Maybe, yeah. Uh, maybe encouraging <laughs> others to, to do that. The, the first couple of years was a lot of rage and frustration because it literally, in, in software development, one of the things is that you have your, you know, your sprint or however you organize stuff, but there's a lot of conversation out there in the Twitterverse, et cetera, about you got to stop and accept, realize, and note your successes. And in this field, like going through such long periods, you have to do that too, especially because successes are so far apart. Um, but once a success is had, like, say, that light rail put in place in Seattle, that's going to be there for a minimum of 50 years. It's going to be successful for this huge period of time, and there's going to be so many gains. So you get to see it every single day once you succeed. But getting to that point, you really got to, like, kind of coach yourself. <laughs> and then once you get that success, so remind yourself, tell yourself, like, look at what I helped do, even if it's just a small part. Because it is a lot of work and, you know, you can get, you can trick yourself into being bummed out about it. Just be like, oh God, we're not making any progress. We'll never do this. We'll never be successful. This is horrible. It's all a failure. And, you know, you just get stuck in the weeds if you do that and you'll never get anything done. You got to kind of just like step back every once in a while say like, all right, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. And then once you have that success, step back every once in a while and say, look at that. This is what we did. We got to build this thing or do this thing, and it's it's better now. We made it better. So that's usually important. Awesome. Twitch is paying me, though. I make like $3 a month now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I just, it cracks me up. I'm like, oh, that, there's a money thing now. Because I, I got like a certain amount of people follow me or whatever, whatever the little metrics are. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, you need to add your account so we can pay you. Like, oh, I'll, I'll take money. I mean, even if it's a dollar, it's just, it's a neat, it's the notion that is neat to me. But yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe one day it'll turn into actual money. But uh, right now it's just fun. You know, people come in and they like throw bits. And I'm like, I always, I always think of things <laughs> throwing bits. So you're like throwing money at me? That <laughs> it seems kind of weird, but it's, you come in and you type cheer and then the number amount of bits. Mm -hmm. And you get this like bits cheered. Such and such cheered bits. So it says bits is really just it gets in-game currency, which is paid for with real currency. Mm -hmm. You know, not to obfuscate like 
the the multitudes of pseudo currency we have and currency and all this stuff, but uh, they have that, and it's it's kind of just a neat little fun thing. You see a little alert pops up and whatever, and people can like get on the the board where it's like top cheer, second top cheer, third top cheer, and it like rotates every week or two or something like that. But it's it's just fun stuff, and then seeing that even if it's like you made two dollars this month. And, my thought is always like, would you even pay that out? Is that even worth paying out? It's weird, <laughs> but uh, it's it's neat to know that that's like that's going on in the background. All that it's actually a market of sorts. Yeah, well, the gamification of um, I hate to say the word content, but the gamification of, of creation, I suppose, is a better word to use. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, and I think since you know the rise of YouTube and people creating their own channels, their own shows, it used to be you know we were kind of fed. Our programming and mm-hmm. now we create it and I think there's a bit of a feedback loop within that as well but it's quite a paradigm shift to actually take control and to go out and create yeah yeah it's one of those things that I, I enjoyed a lot I still also very much enjoy like very creative built contents i.e you know Game of Thrones in my opinion is not getting replaced anytime soon I except that it's ending which is a bummer but as far as that level of content, that's just like, you just can't whimsically do that by yourself. Even a billionaire couldn't do that. He'd still have to go hire, like, the team, the crew, the studio, etc. Like, you need a lot of people and thought and everything to go into something like that to really make it cohesive and stick and beautiful. Um, but yeah, the, like, the self-curated stuff is really amazing unto itself, too. I do, however... and. On YouTube, I was reminded recently, there's the weird, dark side of this. Like, the cohesive energy that has gone into straight-up, like, Nazi apologists, for instance. I am not looking up this stuff at all. And what happens? Ploop! There's such-and-such such professor, Nazi apologist. I'm like, why am I shown this? Well, because the algorithm, for some reason, like, I, I probably looked at, like, World War II mega train tank right and also boom i get this crap and i'm like this is this is freaking scary like we don't need this what is happening and it's being fed though in the undercurrents of all this positiveness and of course that's what pops up in the news when bad things happen is like the crazies um and i just can't help but think like what are we doing there and it also makes me think back to that point in time where people were worried about Facebook basically letting you curate everything you see here and do till there's no point in like like someone just curates themselves into a right wing or left wing or whatever viewpoint. Like someone could curate themselves into the epic land of My Little Pony or something, and and all of a sudden everything is pink and little ponies and whatever, and they know that there are no real horses anymore you know some crazy thing just to use as an example and that actually now that i say that there's like a whole my little pony culture actually so (laughs) my point being (laughs) it it is a little scary what some of the offshoots of this creativeness enables and then the weird locked in mentality that like facebook and even twitter to some degree and these social elements like engineer into letting people do to themselves. It just freaks me out. I mean, it freaked me out whenever they were writing about it 10 years ago. And they're like, oh, people are going to be able to basically build exactly what they want to hear. And it's just going to be a self-feeding loop of 
well, that's what I think, so that's what that thing that I listen to thinks, and they're telling me to think that thing that I think, and so now that I'm thinking that thing, I really think that thing. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and we're broken, you know? Uh-huh. It's like, oh, no, what's happening? But I don't know. It's it's That's that super, super hard problem to fix. Um, and just like the machine learning conference, that's the thing that comes up is like, how do you fix the machine learning algorithms that basically we trick ourselves into using that just reinforces the bad logic and bad data that we have about something and ends up discriminating against a set group of people or whatever. That's completely foobard mm-hmm. beyond all things. Because all we're doing is we're, we've just effectively taken a non-biased algorithm and used it to reinforce our completely biased view of something. It's like, no, you can't do that. But some people are doing it anyway. And then they sell it. And then it's pull the reins. But where are the reins? What are they attached to? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I could, what... I could go on about all that for hours, days, months. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a really good point about data bias. And that's, you know, you heard about big data about yeah. a decade ago. And people are like, oh, big data. We don't know what that is, but that sounds really <laughs> awesome. Let's see yeah. what, everybody has a big data initiative. And what are the projects for big data? We don't know yet, but big data, all in. And I love that they all get put in like data lakes, data ponds, <laughs> all these bodies of water. Right? It's like, <laughs> who started doing that? Why are they in bodies of water? Why yeah. is the data always in water? But, yeah. I don't know. And then you've got data bias now, and you know what's developing. You see anything that's exponential in nature, and I think all of the tech, mm-hmm. uh, emerging tech, tends to follow that exponential curve. And because we're working with so many more powerful things now, I guess the dilemmas that we get into things like bias and data. These are almost afterthoughts, and now we're realizing, oh, these are things we should probably fix. Right. Um, but it's an interesting conversation as you get more and more involved in all of these emerging technologies. At what point do you need to start fixing things? At what point are you kind of self-censoring? Right. And what are the unintended consequences that you can't really know until they've already passed? So we've got some really existential... Um, Almost like you stumble right past yeah. the disaster you make. You make the disaster, and then you're like, oh, crap, I made the disaster. We should fix the disaster. How did we... What did we just do? You know, there's a lot of the... Yeah, well, like you're saying, it's just it's the, it's the post-processing of the whole situation. You don't see it until you just run right smack into it and through it. And then there it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any talks in ML for all that are around data bias that you can go into or? Oh, um, I think we've picked at least one. Uh, and we have had that previous years, which was really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a conversation that continues. I find it interesting too, just from like the watching how people interact thing and how we have our cognitive biases break logic or not or whatnot with the data that just ends up it starts biased and then it gets fed into an unbiased algorithm and all of a sudden now it's a biased algorithm because you're using it for the wrong thing it's it's giving you the wrong information you're just perpetuating a broken thing but then there are people who are like no i believe in the broken thing so the data is right and the algorithm's unbiased you said it was so now this biased data that i think is right is now the way it is and the algorithm proved it and of course, unpacking that, trying to take that back apart and fix it at that point, when you have advocates for the wrong thing, for the bad thing, um, is extremely difficult. And I, I've seen that time and time again with these basically racist arguments on crime. Right? They're like, well, that's the data. The data doesn't lie. Well, it's, it's the data we have. 
A. Oh, and well, you put it in the algorithm. The algorithm's not biased. Well, it's not biased, but if you put in the data that we have that isn't the complete data and or the data is already broken, then you reinforce it. Well, it's the truth then, so da 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 you're like, oh, how do you, how do you fix that? Because then, then you have more than a data problem. You have a faith and belief system built around this thing that's broken already, and they're not whimsically just going to change that faith and belief system. You know, so you, you now have the dual, extremely difficult problem of well, you can fix the tech. You know where some of the solutions are for that. One, fix the data, or make the data representative of what outcome you're trying to actually achieve and try to you know go back and forth with it to determine what you really need to be running data on from a machine learning perspective or analysis or whatever. But then you have the other problem of like you have to unpack someone's faith in this broken idea. And that's just that's dangerous. That's that's what leads to the shooting and the wars and the bad stuff. Um, so doing that in a way that minimizes the risk of war or conflict or whatever is extremely difficult because you're effectively going to have to say you have to stop having that belief in that broken notion or we put you somewhere safe like not in public <laughs> maybe in jail um and it you know you just you end up with so many really touchy risky problems in like you can't just throw somebody in jail they've not done anything but they're just perpetuating an idea but if they're perpetuating the idea then they're exacerbating the real problem because someone's going to listen to them and go oh that person's not smart Boom, more problem. It just, it just grows. So at some point, you have to be able to stop it and control it and fix that so you can actually get around to the issue you started with, which is the broken bias data. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, such a, it's like a spinning circle of turtles all the way down. <laughs> yeah, every door you open, five more unintended yeah. doors open. <laughs> I got three turtles. Well, those two ran away. They just had baby turtles. Oh, there's 400. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to get on record or chat about? Um, I would like to get on record that I didn't do it. And <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. Well, there's the list of things that I have coming up. Of course, ML for All. Uh, there's the monthly meetup in Seattle. Right now, it's still, it's still just called Seattle Scalability, but it's also partly like Cassandra meetup, but it's a mesh of a couple of different things. Um, as per some of our off-the-record conversations about other user groups, maybe some of us will be joining forces to kind of bring even more speakers and things like that. And in all these meetups, in the Seattle ones and the soon-to-be-announced Portland meetups, and maybe even Vancouver meetups, I don't know, one of the things I'm trying to do with all of them is have a speaker-slash-workshop split. So there's at least like an intro, getting started 10, 15 minutes on a cool topic. Maybe it's just like a survey of tools or using a library or something just technical, very technical focused, kind of getting into the weeds with something. And then, you know, it can be a conversation starter or just taken as is. And then a little break and we dive into a presentation where someone's coming to talk about whatever it is they're coming to talk about. So I'm trying to introduce this format. I've seen a lot of the, we'll have two speakers to add value. I think this format might be a little bit more of a value add than just trying to have multiple speakers um, because then we get to engage more of the way we interact with each other in the first place. You know, if, if somebody wants to bring a laptop, they can work through the workshop part, or if they just want to listen, they can do that. Either or, right? But it, it gives us a little bit 
of a different way to engage instead of just listening to two presentations. Um, the next Seattle Scalability Meetup, I'll actually be doing the little kickoff part because I have a few ideas and I wanted to share those with everybody and get some of that information out there and get some conversations started around the format, but also what I'm going to introduce, which is basically some data munging tools, kind of like a survey of some tools that I've been using lately. And I'd love to show people what I've been using, what I've been doing with it, but also get their feedback on it and say, you know, like, do they think the tool is cool? Do they know of another tool that does even more and is better? Like, what's, you know, what's the view on the things? So I'll be doing that for the next Seattle meetup. And then I believe the May meetup too. And then we'll be announcing the Portland one. Just talked to some people here at DevOps Day, matter of fact, about space to use for the Portland meetup. So that should be coming together very soon. And it'll be kind of the same format. So that's that's the big stuff I have on the schedule other than riding some trains and some bicycles and watching the airplanes fly by. <laughs> nice. So if people are looking to get a hold of you, first of all, we, we often ask, do you have any questions for our audience? So if you do, now is your opportunity. Uh, of course, there's all the snarky ones, like what's the answer to the universe? <laughs> what is beyond 42? Um, but other than that, I would love any type of feedback from the audience about what they're often looking for. Like if, if they want to jump into a Twitter conversation or join a Twitch stream or whatever, like what are the things that they would want to see on a Twitch stream? What would they think of? Like if you watch a few minutes and you're like, oh, you know, it'd be great is if you go through XYZ or if you talk about this thing, like what's your two cents on that? Or have a guest on, you know, you stop talking and have some guests on. I would love that kind of feedback. Just the ideas. I'm always looking for New ideas of ways to make it entertaining for people and valuable to people, but also just different content to put together. I like it as a creative outlet in that avenue, and I usually take other people's ideas and run with them if they want to offer them. I don't want to like steal anybody's ideas, of course, but yeah, so that's that's kind of my big ask for the audience. Cool. And then if people want to reach out to you, what are the best channels? Uh, telepathy. I mean, Twitter. <laughs> um yeah, Twitter is probably the, the quickest, easiest way to get in touch with me 99% of the time. Direct message or just message at me. I have the direct messages open, so you can just tweet whatever you want at me. Otherwise, like you can go to my blog, compositecode.blog. If you want to send me a message and you don't have my email address, um, you can send me an email at, at adrianhall at gmail.com. I read email like once a week now because it's kind of gotten to the point where I get a lot of email, but I also have these other mediums that are like higher priority. So the, I kind of get a wash in those and don't get back to the email that frequently. You can always, of course, ping me on LinkedIn too. I'm, I'm out on that universe, but that is like every three weeks. So don't, it's time sensitive, drop the LinkedIn, get over to Twitter or send me an email, something like that. I would say call me, but that also is very ineffective. I only pick up the phone for like three people on earth or my, any, any of my cats or dogs that I'm friends with that manage to use the phone, I will pick up for them. But otherwise, I just I just don't really answer the phone that much because it's what's the stat now? Like they expect ninety five percent of all phone calls are either going to be two factor off verification for SMS texts and legacy two factor at that, but or spam calls. I feel like I'm halfway there already, so that's one of the reasons I just like the phone is just not a really good effective medium for productive high priority communication between me and anybody. My dad still calls me on the phone. I'll pick it up if he calls. Mainly because he won't use anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, Adron, thanks so much for joining me today. And it's a real pleasure having you on the podcast. And I'm excited to see 
you know, your conferences and, and everything that happens over the next year or two. And I'm curious to see people reach out as well. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. And, and thanks for letting me in the country. I uh, appreciate it. <laughs> well, had a great time. Stay tuned for additional outtakes. Every episode that's recorded usually comes with its handful of technical challenges, and there were a number of really humorous ones that I thought our audience might find a little funny, especially for those that are in into recording and deal with technology day to day. No matter how many times you plan or how many backups you have, things can go wrong. So uh, stay tuned and listen to Adron and I fumble. Uh, All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye for now.
some reason, this is not registering that it's plugged in, but it is. Uh oh. Which is weird. Should be fine. Is the power strip still plugged in? Ah, I want to check. <laughs> <laughs> kind of wonder. Uh, try different ones. Why is this not? This is so awful. Okay, try this again. You just need the, the plug. See, this is what scares me. That one USB I know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's so multifunction good. that if it stops working, you don't just lose power. It's like you lose all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Did it go? Thinking. Oh, the other crux on this one too. Like I can't actually use the less, the lower powered one. It has to be like the full powered Thunderbolt charger. Really? Yeah. Or otherwise it won't. Like it won't trigger correctly. Is that? Does that actually do anything? That definitely did something. Oh, that just cut the power. Sorry. <laughs> That's not good. Um, okay. Try that way. Is that going to work? Do you want to power? Uh, if you have one, sure. I don't know why that's not working. Yeah, that's going to crap out otherwise. <laughs> oh, More fun stuff. Yeah, worried. I almost thought I didn't have the attached part for this. I don't know why that's not working, but... Apparently it's not working. Thank you. It's it's the super duper one, so it should get oh, yeah, charged yeah. up really fast. Perfect. Good. Oh, for some reason, me and power bars. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, oh, that's cool. As I say, it should just fit. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so funny. All right. So on today's episode of technical challenges. <laughs> I might actually keep some of this in. We'll see. Yeah. Where where are all the plugs? What type of plug shall you use to power your laptop? <laughs> and what happens when they all fail? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's unfortunately sound. It's just so close to home. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, where was I? What was I saying?